Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. I've wanted to do an episode on the psychology of jiu-jitsu for some time. I know that this is a very broad topic, and this can mean many different things to many different people. In this episode, we make an attempt to cover some of what I feel are the imperative scenarios. Recently, I happened to have stumbled upon an article in Psychology Today entitled The Psychology of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. After reading the paper, I knew I had to have the author on the show to help field the myriad of questions I had, most of which we answer on the show. David Lay, PhD, was born with one hand, is a BJJ black belt, and is a clinical psychologist in practice in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He earned his doctoral degrees in clinical psychology from the University of New Mexico. Dr. Lay is licensed in New Mexico and North Carolina and has provided clinical and consultative services in numerous other states. He is the executive director of New Mexico Solutions, a large outpatient mental health and substance abuse program in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Dr. Lay has been treating sexuality issues throughout his career. He first began treating perpetrators and victims of sexual abuse, but expanded his approach to include the fostering and promotion of healthy sexuality and awareness of the wide range of normative sexual behaviors. Dr. Lay has published three books and dozens of articles on psychology today. He's been featured in the New York Post, London Telegraph, CNN, Huffington Post, and many more. Okay, some housekeeping notes. I've obviously flagged the show as explicit given the sensitive topics we discuss, some of which are depression, substance abuse, sexual assault, trauma, and more. Thus, this is a stern warning that this episode may not be for young children or kids. Just a reminder to please give us a five-star review on iTunes or just share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. And leave us feedback, suggestions, and consider being a patron at anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt. Also, like our Facebook page to get all the latest at facebook.com forward slash forever white belt. And check us out on Instagram at forever white belt show. Go buy your forever white belt swag at teespring.com forward slash forever white dash belt. And with that, I give you Dr. David Lay. David, thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a great show. David, you are a jujitsu black belt, correct? Under who? Roberto Alencar. And that's out of Albuquerque, New Mexico? Yeah, under uh, Gracie Baja. I've been training under Roberto 17 years now, 16, 17 years. How did you fall into it? And what did your first day of jujitsu look like? I was a wrestler back in the day. I wrestled in a middle school and high school, loved it. When I graduated high school, I was like 91. You know, there wasn't a lot out there. Um, there was some freestyle wrestling and stuff. I did that for a little bit, but there wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, they didn't have many options. And then 17 years ago, my son had been, he did Gracie Baja Jiu Jitsu summer camp or something like that. And I was taking him to the classes and I, and I, and I said, wow, you know, this looks like a lot of fun. Would it be okay if I did it? And he said, yeah, that'd be awesome. So I guess he was like 12, maybe at the time. So I started taking classes and uh, it was the best father something he and I ever did. I think it's really good parenting to be able to choke your son out. <laughs> and he got to blue belt and he got a life, you know, and moved on mm -hmm. to other things. And I just, I just kept going, you know, it feels a really important part of my life. And honestly, I never thought I'd get to black belt. I, I figured, you know, yeah, with my skill level, I'll probably get to brown belt. And that'll be good enough. And uh, and then, you know, one time professor you know, turned to me and said, hey, it's, it's your time. 
Oh, that's amazing. That's awesome. I've been so excited to talk to you. I was on my friend Travis and John's podcast, the Elbows Type podcast, and they did an interview with me and they asked me why I started this podcast. And there were several reasons, but a lot of what I've realized when I had a previous podcast, I was talking to a lot of leaders and CEOs and tech leaders, and a lot of it came down to psychology. So I was so excited because I was telling them, you know, a lot of the academies that I've run into and and elite athletes and people that I've talked to in in the jujitsu community, a lot of it comes down to psychology as well. And I wish there was some (laughs) psychologist or or some psychology literature that I could read that pertains or relates to jujitsu in some way. And that's how I stumbled upon yourself. You wrote something in Psychology Today. And and can you tell us, that was quite some time, it was a few years ago, but it's still very relevant. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, just as your audience knows, I'm a um, clinical psychologist and and I write a lot about psychology, mental health, sexuality issues. I specialize in working in sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I've written a couple of pieces on psychology today. I've got a blog on psychology today that I want to yeah. say I've got like 16 million readers or something like that. I mean, yeah, you're you're quite prolific. I was like 17 pages of going through psychology yeah. today of your post. It was it was incredible. Plus your three books. Yeah. So it gets, you know, it gets a lot of attention, but yeah, I wrote a couple of articles, one about the psychology of Brazilian jiu-jitsu and just really why it's so popular, why it's so compelling. And in it, you know, I talked about some of the psychology, I talked about some of the neurochemistry Mm -hmm. that is probably going on. And that piece went viral. It got a lot of attention, you know, and I I talked about things like the fact that many of us go through life, go through days without touching anybody else. And, you know, one of the things that I see in, in my, in my practice as a psychologist is that people are just incredibly isolated. And Mm -hmm. jujitsu, you know, my wife calls it cuddling for alpha males. (laughs) And, you know, there's there's something there. I mean, because Mm -hmm. it is one of the few opportunities where we can really touch and be physical, physically close with people in a safe and healthy way. And there's all these endorphins and neurochemicals that come out of that. Plus there's the competition. There's the assertiveness. I wrote a piece on Quillette about training jujitsu out at Burning Man. Because um, out at Burning Man, there's a jujitsu camp. What's it called? Nice Guys Finish Last or something like that. <laughs> and rolling around in the desert doing jujitsu out there is just a wow. wicked lot of fun. But it's the safe competition. It's the closeness. We get to meet people and competing with them in that kind of physical way builds bonds really, really quickly. There's just so much going on, I think, in mm-hmm. jujitsu that is really powerful. And then I also I also read another piece on Psych Today about disabilities because one of the things about me is that you know I was born with only one hand. So my jujitsu journey has been fascinating because I have not only do I have to figure out how to use my arm and how to adapt to moves, but my opponents, you know, my partners they have to figure out what moves they can do on me and what they can't. And that's one of the really cool things about jujitsu is that it is different for every one of us. And every one of us have different physical abilities or psychological abilities that make certain moves work for us or don't. And everybody's got this individual journey. It's so powerful. Let's talk about several different things and center the under the umbrella of sort of academy dynamics. So first of all, there's this notion or this relationship of the teacher and the student. We'll delve into sort of the darker side of this first. Recently, there's been some allegations in terms of like sexual misconduct, the things happening in terms of like uh, the older, a couple older teachers at various academies grooming younger females. And uh, sometimes they're minors and at times too. Other times they become adults 
adults or 18 year olds, and then suddenly there's a relationship happening. Can you touch upon that dynamic and what's going through the minds of these type of individuals? I actually worked with individuals who commit sex offenses for many years. The biggest, most dangerous thing that I see is narcissism, is Mm. entitlement, and people that think they deserve to get away with it because they're special, because everybody defers to them, because they're better at jujitsu than anybody. And so they start feeling like they can break the rules or they can violate boundaries or push the limits. That's the thing that, that I think is dangerous. You know, you don't see humble people engaging in sexual perpetration. Conversely, are you seeing the student? Why does the student gravitate to to someone like that? Power and abilities and respect that the people that have accomplished the black belt and competition and, and success. I've certainly seen as a writer, as a you know, as a pretty popular psychologist and speaker in the media. And strangely, I have people throw themselves at me. It's not like I deserve it. Kissinger said, power is an aphrodisiac. Being the black belt in charge has a lot of power that is very attractive to some people. Another aspect that I find really interesting in some academies is some of them do this separation of genders for training, and then some don't. Anecdotally, what I've found is when I train at academies where they blend together my qualitative viewpoint, the females that I see are tougher practitioners, and it just seems to be that way versus when they're separated. Curious about that as well as I also sometimes see romantic partners not allowing the others to train with the individuals of the opposite gender as well. And can you touch on that? I'll, I'll step away because that's a grenade for me. <laughs> I'll let you take the shrapnel for that. <laughs> I respect you know, the decisions that they make. Well, you know, I've trained, you know, all over the world. I love being able to take my gi when I travel and and show up at a gym and check things out. And one of the things I always watch for is how are children and how are women treated in a jujitsu academy? Because I think that says a lot to me about, you know, how mature and developed and aware the people running the school are. And even at my school, you know, we'll we'll have guys show up and, you know, they, they get rough with the female like asserting their dominance or whatever. And usually those guys then get taught a lesson by some other guys about, hey, that's not how we play here. That's not how we do this. We want everybody to keep coming and feel safe and feel like they are developing. It's not about your stupid ego. You know, I've seen some women or frankly, I see more guys with female partners who are concerned about the guy rolling with a female than I see women coming in and training with a jealous husband or jealous boyfriend. The thing I see more commonly, though, is a bit more in my field, and that's folks that come in with a history of trauma and women that have experienced you know, sexual abuse or rape and jujitsu is pretty pretty threatening and pretty triggering. However, what I tell them is that if if you can do this, then A, it will help you be safe in the future. If anything happens again, God help us, we hope not. But secondly, this can be a huge part of your healing because one of the things that, you know, in psychology that we know very strongly is that when we have experienced a trauma, if we then avoid anything that makes us think of that trauma as we move forward, it actually inhibits our healing. 
Because for us to heal, we need to learn how to separate what happened in the past from what's happening now and the future. And jujitsu gives us the opportunity for that. And actually, one of the things I'm really proud of is that I've worked with a number of people, both male and female, helping them develop self-defense strategies after a history of trauma with those goals in mind. And it's been really healthy and successful. I also know some jujitsu folks that are working similarly with vets using jujitsu to help them heal their PTSD from combat. Yeah, that's definitely a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about in that whole aspect is students with depression, PTSD. But going back to the individual, primarily female, let's face it, who's been the victim of sexual assault or some sort of trauma, what are your suggestions to the instructor in terms of like how to just even start, how to proceed? First, talking about it, creating an open door where we can talk about these things. It is in silence and secrecy that that problems and resentment and misunderstandings grow. So the encouragement I would say to an instructor is first, if a student identifies a history of trauma to you, that you respect them, thank them for sharing that information, help them know that that, that's going to help us as an instructor support them in their jujitsu journey better. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to be able to share that history. And we need to respect and acknowledge that. Secondly, I tell instructors, if you're on the prowl, picking up your students is probably not a good idea. And these kinds of students, definitely not because they are looking for safety. And one of the ways that you give them safety is by saying, hey, I am just here to train and learn my jujitsu and help other people learn jujitsu. You don't have to worry about me trying to take advantage of you because that's not what I'm here for. And then encourage the student to identify if they have any problems. Hey, please just don't touch me here, you know, or being in guard position feels really kind of threatening. I'm not ready for that yet. Okay, let us know when you are. And then also debrief. And let's be clear. I mean, years ago, I went rough with everybody and I had to get told to kind of chill out. And so then I started a thing that, you know, after I go with, a smaller opponent after I go with a lighter opponent, after I go with not all females, because there's some females that are super tough and kick my ass. But I always check in with them afterwards. Hey, was that okay? Was that a good speed? You feel comfortable with that? To give people the chance to identify if there was any problems, because that's part of how I learn to be a better partner in the future. So those are the things I would suggest. It's about communication. That's really the ultimate base answer is create a safe, trusted communication path, and we can work through all these issues. It sounds like, as you said, that victim of, of trauma, jujitsu would seem like, my God, talk about leaning in back into it. Like you said, it takes a tremendous amount of courage. I couldn't even imagine how walking through that front door, what's going through their heads on the first day. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's intimidating, frightening, and yet really, really hopeful. That's the other thing is that for somebody with that kind of history to come in and try jujitsu, it's because they are hoping that they can make their future better than their past. Mm -hmm. And that's a beautiful thing. Let's touch upon um, depression. That seems to be very prevalent among people in general, especially during these past couple of years. I often hear that, and I'm sure you have as well, is how jujitsu benefits people with depression. Your thoughts on that as well as, I'm sure your thoughts are, look, someone with depression shouldn't solely rely on jujitsu as well. 
Absolutely. You know, to overcome depression, to accommodate or deal with depression, there's a whole lot of things going on. Sometimes medication, sometimes psychotherapy, oftentimes psychotherapy, but it's about learning new skills. It's about learning ways to approach life in different ways. And jujitsu can be a big part of that. And one of the things that we often recommend for people who are experiencing depression is regular exercise and socializing, getting out and having social connections with people. And jujitsu actually offers both of those. So it can be a really powerful component of dealing with depression. And one of the things that is insidious about depression, though, is that when you feel depressed, you don't want to do things. Mm-hmm. And so you have to force yourself to do them. I think most of us in jujitsu have that experience, you know, where you're like, ah, oh, I don't feel like training today, but you force yourself to go train anyway. And you end up having a really good day. That's a little bit of a experience right there of what depression kind of feels like getting and helping people to get past that, I think is really important. Now, along with depression is substance use. I can't even count how many people I know that jujitsu got them out of pretty severe substance use problems. It was a big, big part of their recovery and gave them a goal to focus on, gave them a place to go, gave them a place where they weren't alone, gave them physical fitness and the energy and the endorphins that come along with it, gave them a a high after jujitsu with no drugs involved. Can you touch upon some of those physiological changes that happen during jujitsu? What's happening to us? There are a tremendous number of neurochemicals and hormones that are released in our body just as we exercise. But then there's some unique ones, I think, that are going on also with jujitsu because because of the, the physical proximity and the closeness that are involved. So there are neurochemicals being released in your body like testosterone. When we as humans compete, our body starts to release testosterone to get us ready for the next competition. Our body is always preparing to fight the next fight. And so when we have a physical competition, our body starts releasing more testosterone, assuming that we'll have another competition in the future. So that's one thing that's happening. There's also neurochemicals being released like oxytocin. Oxytocin is a bonding neurochemical. Now, to be clear, neurochemicals in our body do lots of different things. There's no neurochemical has a single function, but oxytocin is a neurochemical that is released in our body when we cuddle with people and when we're close to them. And it helps develop bonding relationships. I think that's one of the reasons why we develop such close relationships in jiu-jitsu. And then dopamine, it's often misunderstood. It makes me incredibly furious when I hear people talking online about being addicted to dopamine with the idea that dopamine is like an opioid that feels good. Dopamine doesn't work that way. Dopamine is a learning neurochemical. And when we do something that is difficult and then we get a reward, our brain releases more dopamine to help us learn what it was that we had to do to achieve that reward. Again, it's about learning and it's about preparing for the next thing. So because jujitsu takes so much effort and so much practice, there's a lot of learning that's going on and your brain is where that learning is happening and the neurochemicals that are released in there are part of it. And then and then there's opioids that are released, opioids in our brain, very similar to things like morphine or heroin that feel good. And we see the same thing in people after they run a marathon that their brain releases these, these opioids to help us deal with some of the pain. And the thing is, they feel really good. So it's one reason why we can, we can get choked out by our partner and then be smiling like crazy. 
A, because of the bonding and the closeness and the experience, but also because our brain is going, what just happened? Touching upon some of the frustrations that you had in terms of the science, there's a lot of stuff within the jujitsu community, as some people call it bro science, where you hear these things like, and if you could please clarify, does abstinence create more testosterone? Additionally, does <laughs> does uh, masturbation affect competition or training performance? Definitely hitting in my ballpark here. So first, the research actually is the exact opposite, that abstinence from sex and masturbation decrease testosterone. They're more likely to lead to your testosterone levels decreasing because, again, our body is saying, well, I'm not having sex, so I don't need to get ready for sex in the future. But when we have sex or masturbate, our body is like, oh, okay, I got to get ready for more sex in the future. So it ramps up the testosterone. So abstinence from masturbation, abstinence from watching pornography, abstinence from sex in general actually leads to your testosterone levels decreasing, not increasing. And an unfortunate and moralistic kind of argument, a lot of the people making these arguments, they think you shouldn't masturbate. They think you shouldn't watch porn. They think that any sex other than heterosexual heterosex is unhealthy and shameful. And they're using sciencey sounding language to cover up the fact that they've got moral issues here uh, and they're trying uh, to control your behavior. And then the, the question around sex with athleticism is an interesting one. I've researched it a, a good bit. There's almost no science to support a negative role of sexual activity of any kind on athletic performance hmm. with one exception. There there was one study with, I think, marathon runners that found that if they had engaged in sexual activity within four hours of the event, there was a decrease in athletic performance. So it could be that with running, that there is that impact at that short-term level, but to extend that to other athletic activities, I don't know. There's not much science behind it. So in terms of jujitsu athletes within the community, there's a lot of incentive for people and, and pitches for things like life coaches in that type of space. When should a jujitsu practitioner look for something like a life coach versus a psychologist? And, and how do the two overlap and blend? And, and what's the danger of going to one and not the other exclusively? Uh, you're asking me some unexpected questions. These are cool. I've never gotten asked some of these. First, I want people to understand that life coaches are an unregulated field and they're not licensed. If a life coach takes your money and runs, if a life coach gives you really bad or dangerous advice, there's not really anybody you can complain to. And that's a problem. But if you see a licensed therapist, A, they have standards that they have to follow. And B, if they do something wrong, you can complain to their licensing board and mm -hmm. make it so that they don't get to hurt anybody else. However, I think that life coaches can be a valuable part of people's moving forward in life. Where I encourage them to, to look is more specific kind of areas. If you're looking for a life coach to help you develop your business, to, to write your novel, to change careers, right? These are all kind of a specific sort of target thing. You can find somebody, I think, that can offer you some really good, healthy advice there. But if you you're looking for a life coach in terms of how to be a different person or how to deal with depression, how to deal with substance addiction. These are areas where those issues are really connected to a lot of other bigger things. 
things, your mental health, your relationships, your identity, your upbringing, your background, those are more complicated, more nuanced. Lastly, I supervise a lot of life coaches and people that are basically peer support workers in a lot of ways. They need to know their limits. If you're a person that's dealing, for instance, with thoughts of suicide or self-harm, you need to be seeing somebody that has support to help you. And oftentimes life coaches are out on their own, a little unsupported, and they sometimes don't know how to deal with those more serious issues. One of the big problems, I think, for academies oftentimes, and, and probably the majority of its constituency is made up of the quitters. Those that come into jujitsu, they last for a little bit and then they're gone. I just want to get your perspective on what can academy owners do to work on retention? And then additionally, what's going on within the mind of those individuals that are the majority out there that are quitting and how can they come back? My experience with jujitsu has been the little successes are the things that keep me going. And so the times when I've thought about quitting was where I hit these plateaus and nothing I did seemed to work and nothing seemed to be getting better, you know, and I found myself, you know, getting my butt kicked by these people that I'd been beating them up before. And in those times, what I do is I find a little thing that I want to work on. And I'll pick out some move that I want to try and practice. And then I go in and I don't focus on winning. I don't focus on dominating my opponents. I don't focus on scoring points or submissions. I'm just focused on trying to get that move. And even if I get submitted 10 times, if I'm able to hit or try to hit that move, I feel like I won. And that's a success. And so what I encourage folks to do when they're in those places where they're thinking about quitting is slow down, go down to the micro level and look for these little successes, celebrate those. The more attention we give to those little things, those little successes, the more of them we get. So I I encourage instructors as well, you know, when you've got somebody that they're looking like they're getting frustrated, maybe getting ready to give up, help them see, hey, you're doing better at that today than you were yesterday. That's cool. You're getting it. The successes don't have to be big. They can be really little. Since you have so much experience and you've seen this, I want to talk to you about a little bit about the psychology of the belt and stripes. It appears that belts seem to work in several different ways with individuals. Belts can seem like they're an incentive, sort of what we're talking about to some extent. And then belts can also sort of be the representation of anxiety for a lot of students as well. What's your experience with that? I have never really felt like I deserved the belt I had, but after I got my black belt, and I guess I've had it five years now, maybe, I think it took me a year before I felt like, oh, okay, I'm not a fraud when I put this on. When I started with Gracie Baja, we were under Alberto Crane at the time, and it was a New Mexico Jiu-Jitsu Academy or something like that. We switched to Gracie Baja a year or two later. We had a bunch of different belts. We, We didn't have the white to blue. We had a bunch of the color belts in between. It seemed like something that was engineered to keep people feeling like they were moving on, you know, moving forward. I get it. Kind of like what it. 
Yeah. Like what I said a moment ago about celebrating those little successes. I have the unique opportunity. I live in Albuquerque and uh, we've got Jackson Wink here. The Jackson Wink is one of the preeminent UFC and MMA training schools in, in the world. And I, I train there. I coach some disabled kids that train there. And then we have a lot of fighters that come in to train with us in jujitsu. And so, you know, you might be going with somebody that's a white belt on the mat wearing a gi, but they've been in the octagon gone fighting for nine, 10 years. Mm -hmm. This is not a white belt. So I've learned to really look beyond the belt and expect, you know, some black belts don't give me some much competition and some blue belts I'm sweating and hoping I don't get tapped. In your perspective, what makes a great jujitsu student? Just being hungry to learn. The folks I love working with are the ones who, after you submit them or or you get a good move, they are just happy that that just happened. And then they ask you, how'd you do that? Show me, show me what I should do next time. That's the person that I think is, you know, they're, they're on the mats for life and they're just happy to be there. That's the person I love to be around. Nice. It's like a growth mindset there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, David, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. How can the listeners get more information about you and what you're doing? Yeah, you know, my website is uh, davidlayphd.com. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Dr. David Lay. Last name is L-E-Y, actually. It sounds like Lay. I had to be a sex doctor with that name. <laughs> but yeah, Twitter and my website are two of, the, two of the good ways to find me. I've got an Instagram too, but I forget what that name is. We'll add it in the show notes. Don't worry about that. Awesome. Thanks for doing this. I love the idea of your show. We're really all white belts in this because we all have those places to learn. I mean, I would happily give up my black belt to start off again at white belt because now if I got to do it again, I just think about all the stuff I'd learned that I missed first time through. What a great way to end it. Thanks so much for being on the show, David. Hey, my pleasure, man. Thank you. All right, everyone. So thanks so much for listening and watching out there. Give us the five-star review. And I am Adolfo Fronda, your host, and we will see you next time on Forever White Belt.